You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm super excited to be here with Shakira Bower, who is a Ashtanga yoga practitioner for more than 13 years, a yoga enthusiast, a teacher, and a born and raised in Jamaica student of Ashtanga yoga and also a student of mine. And I'm just so happy to be here with you, Shakira. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. You know, it's lovely to be here talking with you on the show today. Um, it is an honor to be able to kind of talk um, at, at length about this this issue that I'm really quite passionate about, and and to share it with you. And I'm very grateful that you've kind of allowed for us to have the space to be able to do that. And so, thanks for sharing your platform in this way. It's really important. Absolutely. So maybe we can dive kind of right into the foundation of what yoga is. You know, many people come into the practices stretching or healing some body issue that comes up or something along the lines of the, 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 the introductory level. However, in our tradition, in the Ashtanga method, we start off every practice with the opening prayer and it's a very specific invocation. And mm-hmm. within that, there are some kind of guidelines for the deeper dimension of the practice. So mm-hmm. what in the traditional yoga practice kind of lays the foundation for diving deeper beyond just kind of stretching and bending and doing the asanas and the poses and how does that kind of translate into uh, the deeper investigative work of, of identity and self-awareness within the world? It's a really, really, really cool idea and concept. I think when I first started practicing, I, just like you said, I, you know, I was really interested in increased levels of flexibility and I was interested in, in why um, I wanted to be able to touch my toes and why I wanted to be able to do Padmasana. But I remember... The very first time I knew something was different was actually um, one of the last, I think it was in 2008, and it was the day I met you. And we were in this huge gymnasium where we were doing this class. And when the opening mantra was first sung, I was like, it, it, I don't know how to describe what came over me because I had been up to that point really looking. I had different practice, different modalities of asana practice. And it wasn't until I got to, to the Ashtanga method that, that I was like, something is different here. Something is unique. And I was very interested in what, and I, of course, also trying to understand what the Sanskrit meant and, and what everything meant. Um, and I think uh, we, we did, I did a one week workshop with you that year, a little bit, two months or three months later. And I remember one of the things that you had us do was kind of to go through the opening mantra. And from then I was very interested in what the words meant. And particularly because, um, where I'm from in Jamaica, we tend, we're very religious as a society. And one of the, I think, main roadblocks to people even practicing or getting close to the yoga practice was that it wasn't seen as something that was consistent with a Christian, a solid Christian practice. And whether or not somebody was very Christian in their everyday life, or they were simply somebody who went to church on Sundays or somebody who just was, you know, I am Christian because I was raised in, in Jamaica. It, 
you got the feeling that people were very uncomfortable with the idea of yoga. So it was something that I wanted to be clear on understanding before I would go out and talk about it with other people. And so the, the, when I thought of the Vande Gurunam Charanara Vinde, I was like, okay, you bow to the, the sacred feet of the, of the, of the sacred, the lotus feet of the guru. And I'm like, who is the guru? Who are we, you know, because we need to be clear on what that means. And then something about it made me understand that it was about under tapping into my true understanding of my own wisdom, my own intrinsic value, my own intrinsic knowledge of things. And then some, when we get to the part that goes, I, I always have to go through it in my headline by lie. Um, <laughs> And I was like, hold on. Now we're talking about this idea of the physician healing. And now I'm, I was really intrigued. And then and it went on to my favorite part, which is this idea of healing or routing out the poison, as it were. And I can imagine the scene in my head of kind of like, you know, p- pulling out this poison and, and kind of, 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 um, of, of conditioned existence. And I was like, whoa, what is this idea of conditioned existence? And um, I think that's where it got really interesting to me. And I wanted to understand what it meant. Two years, and I didn't really play around with it much then, but then t- I did a two-week workshop with you and Tim and Greg in 2010. And that's when we really dug deep into the philosophy part of the artist. Um, um, and I really would, he was talking to us through kind of like the history of the yoga practice and the history of how things came through. And I was like, oh, so now the idea is understanding what role you play in society or what hat you wear and understanding that we, if we get too caught up in the hats we wear, then we are taking ourselves away from who we are on the inside. Okay, cool. So then that means that every aspect of what you do your job and I think of all the things that people ask you when you first meet somebody right they want to know what your job is they want to know who you know it Jamaica in particular is like this again small homogenous societies tend to be a lot like this um they want to know what your job is they want to know who you are they want to know who knows you they want to know who's willing to acknowledge you in public they want to know where your what your faith base is they want to know you know, all these different things. Who is your family? Who do you know? Whom have you worked with? So they can make connections, you know, whether or not they want to fuel connections with you in a positive way or, or which also happens, they're interested in knowing how much they should give value to you at all. So that's something that's something that you see. And we're human. I understand that we all wear hats, but in wearing those hats, we, we have to come to a point where we're like, okay, oh, if I, didn't wasn't married to this person or if I wasn't a part of this job or if I wasn't a part of this team or if I didn't have these friends who would I be and where would I where would I find peace and where would I find value and where would I find understanding and love of who I am where would that come from and what would you do if you didn't have those things it's similar to the conversation of what would you do if universe forbid you were to have a terrible accident and no longer have the use of your arms or legs and you could no longer do, you know, fourth series or I could no longer do the arm balances of third, which I'm having a fun time learning. And I'm like, you know, this stuff is fun, but if I could no longer do those things, what would it mean for me as a person on the inside? And that, I think it's just as valuable 
what you the the role in which we sit in you know as much as the physicality our bodies are able to 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 perform if that makes sense so that for me became very interesting and then so i was always about okay this is a really uncomfortable thing because now i have to look at who i am and i don't like much the way that i feel on the inside about some things and that that was for me you know the beginning of I need to start looking at things differently. I need to start understanding. What didn't feel comfortable? What I didn't think feel comfortable I was spending, when you looked inside. I think I was spending too much time associating my worth with my ability. One, from a physical perspective, I was associating my worth with my ability to perform asanas. I think every person mm-hmm. goes through this. And particularly, I hit a wall. I remember on my fourth trip, yes. This was 2015, and I was and I hit a huge wall. And I, for the life of me, the two months that I was there, I was just like, I can't get past Kapotas, and I can't get past it. And I, and it was a war. It was really, really an awful feeling. And then it was in Mysore, I, in India. It was in India, and and um, and I felt stuck. And everyone, and I, all my friends were barreling in my mind. This is me. This is not what was actually happening in the universe. But all of my close friends were barreling past me in practice. And I, you know, and I was just like, so I'm not as good as this person, you know, and I'm not as good as that. And I'm not, and I struggled so much. And then I think somewhere in in 2000, I also was so miserable that trip too. I think I'd just gotten together with my husband and we were just starting to date. And it was weird for me to be away from him. We'd been together all the time and we'd gotten together real quick and moved together quickly. And, and I was miserable because I couldn't be in, I couldn't be present. You know, my physical body was in India and I was, there was all these things I could do. Where, where else are you going to have Medivada and, and, you know, Italy and all these <laughs> wonderful things where, and, you know, um, and I was still back in Jamaica, you know, in my mind, 10 and a half hours behind. And my husband, it was my husband who said to me, like, he, he was great. He was like, look look, if you want to come home, just tell me and we can change your ticket and you come home. Or what you can do is you can be there and be in the moment and enjoy it because half of the, half of the things you're cussing about don't matter at the end of the day. Not that they don't matter, but you have such a privilege to be able to go there. To, and I had lost sight of that totally. I was so caught up in my own misery and my own this and my own drama. And I had built mm-hmm. this huge drama around everything. And everything that was happening to me was the end of everything. And that was very humbling in that moment. And I, I, that was, I learned two things from that moment. I needed to get out of my own head and that I was with the right person. Honestly, <laughs> at that point, I was like, I'm clear. This is someone whom I need to stay with and be with. And I was very clear about that afterwards that this was the partner I needed, I needed in my life for the rest of it. Um, I think every then, long-term yoga practitioner has had that moment though, you know, of like yeah. hitting oh, a wall sure. and just feeling like, you know, there's, this is it. And, and, and also having that competitive yeah. feeling of everyone else is doing better than I am. And that's true, whether you're a yoga practitioner or you're a meditator, you know, a lot of times people do, you know, meditation yep. and mindfulness yep. training. And then when they open their eyes, they look around and think everyone else is attaining, you know, samadhi. And then they're just yep. there in their own head. So this is I think a really, really important part about questioning, 
you know, that conditioned existence, you know, and questioning yep. our thought forms and where the, where Absolutely. the real obstacles exist, you know, do they exist outside Absolutely. or are they, are they all constructs within? Exactly. It's really, really bad. And that you say it's a construct tells me it, it makes, now we, now we come back to race because it's the same thing. It's a construct we create to suit us when we need it to suit us just like race is a construct that we use when we need it, when it's convenient, we can say here, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do because this, because that, and we can sort you. But when we, when we're not, when we're done with it, we can put it back on the shelf at our own convenience. And that's what people, that's what we do in situations of privilege. And then when somebody holds us to account, now we're feeling cute and we're on the back foot and now we're defensive and we say, no, no, um, don't pull the, the, the race card because now it's not convenient for us to use, it, you know, and it's really important that this idea of, of taking a construct that we create in our minds and the idea of thoughts. And it's really good that you talked about this idea of, of, um, of, um, sorry, where is I going? Um, meditation, because, you know, we, we can focus and we can sit and, 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 and met and contemplate that, which we are. And we spend all this time in Dharana and Diana, you know? But we also do have to spend time in the world. You know, we have to navigate through the world as well. And that's, that's what I think once I discovered that the practice was meant to be this kind of all eight limbs in one on the mat type of feeling that I was like, ah, so I can begin to understand the ideas of these things while being on my mat and, and being able to experience that too. I think those, that to me was a, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, what, what were some of the, 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 the constructs and thoughts that perhaps got broken down from the practice, from your experience of, of living in Jamaica, you know, how, 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 how's the practice shined light on your, your lived experience in, you know, in, in, in this, in the world of Jamaica? That's really good. That's a really, really good question. I think by the time I, so when I started to practice yoga and it was, I remember that it was a gym class that I had taken like two, over two decades ago if, to tell you how old I, I am. And it's all good. I'm fine. I'm aging like fine wine. Um, and, <laughs> we, and I remember, yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember that it was this, it was seen as uptown people did yoga. It was seen as um, it was a UPT thing. So UPT is kind of how Jamaicans refer to uptown and it means privilege. It means, you know, a certain, it certainly means a certain look. It means a certain, you know, way of living. It's, it means a certain address. It means a certain, you live in a certain area or, or group of areas and you, you talk to a certain set of people. And these are the people that you would have gone to, to prep school with or your elementary school, middle school, high school, university. We would, in a small society such as Jamaica is, you know, it, it's, it's, and very homogenous. I was now beginning to see those things. I had not paid attention to them before, but now in doing the practice, now I really had to look and say, hold on a second. Now I'm beginning to see hierarchies. Now I'm beginning to really see. And these were things that I had not, I had seen them, you know, you know, I had seen how things were like, 
the high school that I went to was this Catholic high school. I'm not going to call its name, but anyone who's Jamaican knows in Kingston, the, the, the pink building with the white uniform with the blue tie. Um, but <laughs> I'd gone to this, I'd gone to this school and this school was a school, was an all girls school and a school definitely of privilege. And when you got there, you were very clear very clear. And I had not experienced this to that point. This was me at age 10. Cause I went, you go to, you go to high school, you start at the time in the eighties, you went to high school at age 10. Now you go at age 12, they've changed the education system a little bit. But at the time I was very, very it was a, a rude awakening. And I realized that, hold on, our, our motto, if you look on any piece of Jamaican currency, it says out of many, one people. That's one of the things we are supposedly priding ourselves on as a culture. But when I got to the school, I realized all the white girls hung together. All the Indian girls hung together. All the Chinese girls hung together. Some of the Lebanese and Syrian girls hung together with the white girls because visibly they were white. They physically appeared as white. And then Within the black girls, which is most of us, you had now, um, not, it wasn't so much, we do have issues with colorism, but now we were looking at money and it was the rich black girls with the middle-class black girls and then the poor black girls. And you saw that hierarchy play itself out. And I was in high school for seven years. That's our high school system is five or seven years. And I saw, and I was like, ah, so now we that school prepared me for the way Jamaican society was. So the minute it was, it was priming, it's psychological priming. It's grooming almost for the kind of hierarchy you're supposed to step into. Now, most Caribbean nations, the U S is also included in this were were also the, the locations of plantations. And we talk about plantocracy. We talk about plantation econ economics, and we talk about that kind of hierarchy. And you can literally see, I studied history too. I studied Caribbean history all the way to, I think, the 11th grade and did it in my regional exams. And we were learning about the plantocracy and the planter and the overseer and the different group, groups of enslaved people. And here was I looking at this, this structure and then I could literally lift it and drop it down on Jamaican society as it exists today. It's a lot more, it's, it's much better than it was when I stepped out into the working world at the end of the 90s. But you definitely got that sense that you were expected to to work through this sort of thing where appearances were very important and and this the idea of the social the conditioned existence was all that mattered and so when you began to not punch holes in that that was a very uncomfortable thing because now i had to see where i was saying things or i was i i had bought into it like I could say that I was this girl from this particular high school, you know, and, you know, for better or worse, it was something that I used and kind of held myself up as separate and, and apart. And I'm like, mm. and when I look at it now, I'm just like, no. And there were so many, and I struggled through high school. It's not that I had the best high school experience, but academically I was great, no problem. But socially I struggled so much. And because, and I think now when I look back at it, I wasn't prepared to sit in cliques. I just wanted to be chill. I just wanted to, to be friendly. And that's always been my, my, my perspective. And even now when I sit in, in Jamaican society, I sort of, not that I, it, by my own choice, I'm sort of a little bit on the outside of things. When I'm, you know, I, I have friends who are government, who have been government senators and heads of industry and that kind of thing. And I don't say this to vaunt myself. I just say it because you're, it's because I've lived in a, a very 
sort of privileged sort of niche in Jamaica. And I recognize that. And I recognize that, that, that as much as I exist in this, the minute you take me out of it, where am I? And I had that. And that's why I think something like travel was so important. And I remember mm-hmm. going to, you know, I went to London a long, long, long time ago. And I, you know, traveled to the States and traveled to India and traveled into Africa and parts of the Caribbean and recognized that outside of my role or my, my, where I fit in the hierarchy in Jamaican society, where did I fall? And therefore I could not depend on that anymore. I could not. And if I couldn't depend on that anymore, nobody can. And if, and if we're doing that, then what we have to do is look at where that doesn't fit and where, if it's unfair to people, then we have to call it out. We have to say stuff about it and say, look, this doesn't work. It's not fair. It's, it's, it, 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 it works. You know that um, that poem by Martin Niemöller Kino? It's this old one that goes, and he, it was like a German priest long, long ago, I think in the 40s. And he said something about, first they came for the, the Jews and I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And then they came for these, you know that one. And, and by mm-hmm. the time he gets to the end of the verse, he says, and then they came for me and there was no one to speak for me. Mm-hmm. And I, that one hit me like a freight train. And I thought, okay, so if I don't speak up for people that are marginalized in some way, then I am feeding into the system that keeps them marginalized. And that's not mm-hmm. fair. And that, mm-hmm. that was a light bulb moment for me. And that's what the yoga practice asks us to do. It asks us to challenge that constantly, to go back in and not just to, to get to a certain level and feel very proud of yourself that you've arrived at this certain level of, oh, look, I'm so, and this is why I hate the word woke, because I've arrived at this level of wokeness, you know? Um, no, because it's consistent. The learning always continues. It must, it has to, you know, because things are going to shift and going to change. And the voice that we have now, we're not going to have this voice when we're 17. You know, Universal provides that we live that long and 17 and 18 and 19, because I'd love to. Our voices are not going to be the voices of the day. So we have to take advantage now when we, we have platforms and our voices are still the voices of the day. And we can say the things that we can, that we say and we can hold people to account because that's the key so having the conversations about where we have to hold people to account that's where we have to begin and what we have to be consistent about and how does that play out in say the country of jamaica versus the country of you know the united states or england or other places because there are some people who might be have thought about intersectionality and racism from a, you know, white dominant country like the United States or right. European countries. But then within, right. within Jamaica, it may be an yeah. entirely different dynamic that, as you mentioned, maybe has a, a, a lot to do with the intersections of class and, and mm-hmm. education and, and, and other forms of privilege. So Absolutely. What, how, how, how does racism show its head in, in Jamaica in your experience? And, and, and how does that intersect also with, with spiritual practices? So, for example, how does it show up within the yoga community of Jamaica versus the Christian community within Jamaica? Right. Really good question. Um, well, I, I, when you started talking about that, when you mentioned it, I started to play with my hair and I wasn't thinking about it, but hair is huge. I remember in, so I started growing, you met me before I started growing locks. And I think I started growing locks, I think in 2010. Now my hair is about the length down to my waist. It's quite long. And now I've gotten 
to a point where I'm like, oh, I love my hair so much. It takes forever to take care of, but I love it. But, um, but it's, it's, it, it's, I make the point about hair because it's huge because we police beauty standards. We police skin tone and we police beauty standards. In other words, the, you know, the way that I would say it's changed over years. So in the seventies, in the eighties, I would say there was much more of this kind of, you were pressured to keep your hair straight and use, we would go to and have our hair pressed. And I would tell you that black girls in the United States might've had that same experience. And even those of us in Jamaica, which is 90% black, 90% black and mixed with black. Um, you would, you, you, my mother would tell me your hair is so difficult to deal with. And it's not that my hair was difficult to deal with. It's just really thick and curly. And, but we've taken this negative connotation to the natural state in which you are, the natural blackness of who you are. And we've made it a negative. We've said that to, in order for your hair to be easier to deal with, I have to change the way it is. And so I went and changed the chemical structure of the, of this, the, of my hair. And I would did years of chemical processing, years of relaxing it, years of putting perms in it to make sure that it was neat or that it was, um, that it was, it was presentable. I remember, and I remember I worked at a, like the last corporate job that I had. Um, this was in 2011. I left there in 2011. And I remember, and I, I at the time I was growing these out, maybe, maybe they were about shoulder length at the time. And it was quite neat. And I remember this was a liberal place. I worked as an investment bank and it was a quite liberal place. And so it was wonderful. And people still there were just like, locks aren't appropriate for, I don't think personally, I mean, I can't police the, the, the way that we are here, but I think that locks are, are inappropriate. And a lot, you ask a lot of Jamaicans, why? And they connect it, one, they might connect it to Rastafari. So that's a connection that is an issue for people. And still the Rastafarian community is faced with a little bit of kind of pushed and marginalization and being pushed to the side and being ignored. And that's a big thing. Um, we, we police uh, appropriateness of behavior. And I, I think Jamaica became, a, a, in, two, two, in, in fact, in 2022, in August, we will be 60 years independent of the United Kingdom. And sometimes I find Jamaicans more British than the British, if that makes sense. It's a kind of way of holding on. I don't know to what, um, but you asked about the connection between the yoga community and the Christian community. So it, it's like you have a very established kind of church community if it's Anglicans. So we've got a lot of, of um, Baptists and Anglicans, smaller per, per, um, um, percentage of Catholics, very, very large percentage of Seventh-day Adventists, people who are very conservatively Christian. I, I, I often joke, and I joke this, I, I, it's a serious thing, and I talk about this with my friends. I'm like, and take lift the whole country of Jamaica and drop it in the United States, and we will be the reddest state. <laughs> I, I promise you and ask any Jamaican to tell you the truth. And we really are so conservative in our approach. And so that, wow. then there's that connection. It, it's very weird. And then we can make that connection between, so enslaved people were, ta you take enslaved people out of their home and you put them in this new place. You tell them they can no longer speak the language they speak. They must speak English. So they create Creole so that they can understand each other. Right. And then you tell them they can't speak Creole. And then we take, we take, 
we, we take away this, the ability to, to speak in this language. Obviously, the language has been able to survive. I speak, I speak Creole, but I speak it only after my, I was only able to speak it in the presence of my father, who is over 70, when I was 21. So it's about how we police exactly. You see what I'm saying? You see, I see your face. It, it's how we wow. police each other. Um, uh, it, it, at a certain level of, of society, you shouldn't, you should learn how to speak the Queens. So, you know, um, we would, we would always look at the UK or the United States or Canada as kind of like the pinnacle of existence. And it wasn't about what about what it meant to be Jamaican. What about what all that meant? And what, what, and let's be clear that although Jamaica is majority black, it, there, there, there's Indian culture, there's Chinese culture, there is, there is white culture. In other words, there is what we would call it colonizer culture, or we'd call it, um, uh, uh, call it colonial culture, I guess. And that comes together, it melts together in a way. And I'm, I may make people uncomfortable when I say these things, but they are the truth. And, and our culture is different because of it. It's a, an amalgam of all these different things, good or bad, good and bad, those things come together. Mm-hmm. And you see it um, in how people police themselves, how we treat women as opposed to how we treat men, how we hold pastors and evangelists on a certain pedestal, how we, are, how we look down on on and it's again it's shifting which is nice because you might go to uh you know around christmas time we would have festivals called like a festival called john canoe and it would be something that um sorry similar to what trinidadians might have and it's based in an old enslaved people's kind of tradition of this is the one day that we have off and we're going to party and then we treat boxing day in a particular way and christmas in a particular day because that was one of the few days that that's enslaved people had off from the plantation so you know it, things like that are are quite powerful but you notice i'm noticing now that people aren't the kids don't really notice this it the same way they don't celebrate those things we have our own music forms mental and garibenta and and brokins and um all sorts of really and kumina and all sorts of powerful african forms you know but we look down on it you know we laugh at the the haiti has voodoo we have obia you know and it's an original form of practice of spiritual practice but we look down on it and we think that that's what's going to bring about the devil because we have to practice the faith. Only the faith of Jesus is the right faith, according to many, many Jamaicans. And they hold strong to that and they hold you down. And I'm, I'm like, where'd you get that from? Who did you learn that from? You know, and that's something that we've, we've taken and we hold on to it so much more tightly than the source country we got it from. And I find in my, in my, friendships with people who, and this is where I would find a commonality between the Caribbean and Africa, it's where I've experienced higher levels of religiosity have been in, in, has been in Africa and has been in the Caribbean. And I don't experience it in other countries. I don't experience it in other places. But that sense of religiosity as opposed to individual faith. Individual mm. faith is one thing. It, I want, and I want it to be clear. Individual faith is one thing. And I'm fine with that, regardless of what you want to do what you believe in, what you practice. That's wonderful. When you decide for me, when you decide that I don't have access to um, adequate healthcare as a woman, when you decide that my, that there, I think on the, on our, in our laws, and I think that that is also based in Christianity in our laws somewhere. It's quite frightening that 
I don't think, I think it's now just being able to be tabled or I, I don't want to, I might get this wrong, but the idea of marital rape is something that people still know. You can't rape your partner. And it's like, wait, what? It, it, it's a frightening thing. And I'm very clear about what I say. But a lot of those belief systems are part and parcel with Christianity. And I'm not attacking Christianity. I'm attacking the social aspect that, that tells you that you have to behave in this particular way to be a part of who we are as Jamaican people. And that's not okay. You should be able to, if you're a Muslim, great. If you're Hindu, we have populations of Muslims and Hindus and Jews and people who are agnostic and atheists just as much as we do Christians. Obviously, smaller populations, but we should be able to also speak or, or, and, and have people feel equally that they can speak their minds. And, and we should also be able to understand that we are a part of so much. If we are um, out of many one people, then we should... We should celebrate Jose, which is a Hindu festival, as much and Diwali, as much as we celebrate Christmas, as much as we understand the, the, the Muslim um, um, side of Jamaica, as much as we understand different, the Jewish side of Jamaica. We have to be able to bring all those things together and have people respect and understand them. It can't just be like the assumption in Jamaica is that you're Christian. That's it. Is that you're, that's the assumption. And so people there are there are people who are like you know what i'm happy to to practice yoga to bring it back to yoga i realized i was going off that that path but to bring it back to the yoga practice i remember when i i think it's one of the trips i'd taken either uh yes i think it was third or fourth trip to, to mysore and sharat was very big on this idea that yoga isn't a religion it was meant to kind of in fact it would help you with your faith if you were a christian you felt deeper because you could then you know, understand more about your own faith when you would sit in contemplation and long periods of meditation about it. And I thought, wow, and it made me think of a, of a Bible verse, be still and know that I am God. And this idea of if you wanted, and I, this is what I came back to Jamaica and was like, look guys, you don't have to worry now, you know, if you want to, to, <laughs> if you want to take practice. And I had a couple of students who were just like devout Christians and still are. And they're like, look, I find that when I practice and I'm working on a difficult posture, it, it's about what it says about me as a human being. When I get to difficult times, how do I deal with a difficult posture is, is a mirror for how I deal with a difficult situation in my life. How do I deal with something that's really easy to do, right? I was born as a forward bender. This is one of the big things I've always known about my body. Back bending, oh my goodness. I remember you and I, this is an experience that I had. I don't know if you remember this, I tell this joke to everyone. The first time I dropped back, you were just like, okay, go drop back. And I was like, and I think I just burst into tears on you right there at the front of the mat. And you kind of looked at me and I, I looked at you and looked at me and you're like, okay, you done now? And I was like, yes. And you were like, okay, no, drop back. And I was like, oh my God, I really, have, I really do have to do this. And that was the first time I ever dropped back on my own without fear because you let me have the space to do that. You acknowledge that there, here's this drama she has. I don't even remember that, but there was this drama about this thing. And then you let it, you let me let it go. And I had to let it go in that moment. And that's what we have to do in our society. Allow people to have their feelings about what they do and say, okay, have you, you felt like that? You understand what that means? Okay. Now you still have to do the uncomfortable thing. Mm -hmm. You know? I think that's so powerful. Let somebody, don't 
shut someone. And this is the thing, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't things that you can absolutely in, be intolerant of. Yes. There are some people who are going to always say, no, that's just wrong off the bat. But most people are, want to be listened to. They want to be understood. And, and they want everyone, as, and as much as they are different, many people just want to have their families be happy. They want to be able to live a comfortable life. They want to be able to put food on the table. They want to be able to have a bit of enjoyment. And that's the truth in South Africa. It's the truth in Florida. It's the truth in Jamaica. It's the truth in Brazil. It's the truth in France. And most people are re fairly reasonable, fairly, fairly misinformation and disinformation aside, you know, I think people want to be understood and they, and they're willing to look at things from a different perspective. If they look, get an opportunity to look at a different perspective. But if you're constantly in an echo chamber and that's what's happened, I love social media. Social media means I can watch clips online and I can learn from different teachers and I can learn different postures and I can learn what you have to say today without calling you on the phone to find out what's going on with Kino today. But it also leaves a space for mis and disinformation around the space of race or privilege or, and even the word privilege, you say the word privilege and people get their backs up real quick because now people associate privilege with wealth and those things are not necessarily the same. How privilege manifests itself in Jamaica is wealth. How privilege manifests itself in the United States might be skin color how it manifests itself. Do you, know, you, do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's Absolutely. privilege is a yeah. big thing. Wealth is just a small part and wealth allows you access. And now if access isn't equal, we have to address what the barriers to that access are. Have you ever seen that little, that little, I'm going to send it to you after this, but if you've never seen this little graphic of equal, it's a, it's a, a graphic comparing equality, equity, and justice and it's three little boys sitting on boxes and equality is three it, each of them is different the shortest boy the shortest boy is a little tiny kid and then the medium-sized kid and then the the tallest kid and they're standing at we're watching a baseball game and they are looking over uh, a, a fence and everyone is standing on one box yeah and that's mm -hmm. equality because everyone's being given the same thing but the smallest kid can't see over the wall because he's short and then the next graphic is, is equity. Now, the smallest boy is sitting on three boxes. The medium-sized boy is sitting on two boxes. And the tallest guy is sitting on one box. And now they're all the same height. Now they can all see. And then the last one, they talk about justice, where the barrier is moved completely. And they are actively a part of participating in, in spectating at this game. They can see it. There is no wall anymore. And we have to, to get to that point of justice and 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 having we have to be able to look at inequality and inequity understand what they are understand how those things relate to privilege and identity and how those things play out in different places in jamaica it's money 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 it is how much money you have because that money allows you access it buys you an opportunity it buys you a gated almost everyone i know lives in a gated community at home in Jamaica. And that's people who are well off or well to do or can afford to live in a gated community because we have an issue with crime. It, it's, 
And what do we do when it comes to education? It's the people who are able to fly out and send their children to schools in the States or schools in Canada or schools in Europe or schools in the UK, because at a certain level, they reason that our universities don't offer the same kind of education, the same quality of education as, as others do, right? We, and we also want to get someone in. If we can get them in the education system somewhere else, then, then they possibly can actually stay there. And then they can take care of us or they can send for us. So it's looking at things from that perspective. So I'm speaking about Jamaican-specific examples mm-hmm. now. Um, so definitely money and access. And then within, within Blackness, within we also police skin tone. So... I can, I can say to you in the 90s for sure, because this was a big thing, it was the, the phenomenon of a browning. And it's always been, but now it was given, the browning was given the voice. And this is just somebody who is very fair-skinned. So I count as a black-skinned woman, a dark-skinned woman, right? Some people might even say I'm brown. I am not. Um, but brown would be like somewhere between me and you, like a kind of caramel skin, co- skin tone. You can think of somebody who is very olive and very dark olive in complexion. And that might be somebody who lives in a quite nice, there's an, there's an assumption that if you are a browning, you are privileged or you might marry well, or you might, I've heard people do this. They talk about marrying well, marrying the right kind of person. And and staying to their certain clique of behavior. And that is a thing of skin tone. So how has yoga practice helped you navigate these uh, places of inequity? And how do you see some of the same inequities play out in the yoga practice? Okay. Um, I think looking at, I really had to go back to the yamas and the niyamas for what I was looking at in terms of how he treated people and big on Ahimsa for me was um, how I treated people and how truthful I was. And I always endeavor to be as truthful as I can, particularly if I have to deliver uncomfortable news. And, and I would always think, what is a way that I can share this that is not harmful in its delivery because it's going to be uncomfortable for someone to face? Um, when I'm teaching, I've decided how I teach. It, it also impacts how I physically teach the asanas. Now, in Jamaica, we've got women who are bigger bodied and we've got women who are bigger boot and curvy. And that's definitely the uh, being thin and skinny is not necessarily, it's, it's a beauty ideal in other places, not in Jamaica. One. And two, you are whatever your body is. Whatever that is, is great. It comes back to that whole idea of you couldn't move your body. What would you be? Would you still be a yogi? Now I don't, I don't police the asana alignment. I want the alignment to be healthy and I want it to be aligned to the student. Too much time I spent trying to align my body to the pose and I should have been aligning the pose to my body, if that makes sense. And that's something that I now try to share with other people. And I try to do that in how I practice. And like, if I'm going through something, a lot of uh, women who are a lot of uh, Jamaica seems to be like the home of fibroids. I have a lot of students and including myself, people who have struggled with uterine fibroids, what it means for us having, uh, when we have our cycles, what it means for us in terms of how we can move our bodies and how we can man- man- um, navigate the discomfort, the pain when people are dealing with um, PCOS and people are dealing with um, 
endometriosis, how we can help them and how we modify as a result of that. And that's specific to large because, and I say those things because fibroids is an issue with black women. It's identified as something that seems to be genetically linked with being Negroid. So that's something that's really, really interesting to understand from a science perspective and how to, to work through that. Other than that, it is about holding people to account. When someone says something that's inappropriate, I don't laugh with the inappropriate, that's a poor person joke anymore, or, you know, or that's a, this is a white thing or a black thing. I'm just like, what does that mean? And why do you think that's funny? And it doesn't often make me the most popular person in the room, but that's okay. Uh, you know, I, the people who love me know me. It's like the people who mind don't matter and the people who matter don't mind um, kind of who I am and where I am. And, to, and I'm also, and you get to your mid forties, you're just like, look, I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. I'm not as worried about what you're going to think about me. Now I'm really in that state now where I'm just like, I'm just going to say how I feel. Um, within the yoga community though, I was really surprised you know, I, I feel it, to see, and this is something that I, that I think, and it's, it's changed how I am when I am in Mysore and it's changed how I am when I talk as a, an, as a person that represents yoga. Because of course, the minute someone hears I'm a yoga teacher, they're like, so what about yoga? And, and in other words, you are now, you know, forced to defend yoga and what it means. Um, that, we, that yoga people are humans, just like everybody else. I remember, and this is somebody whom I love dearly, you know, as a friend, but who asked me in Mysore, and it was just, just shocking, like, and, and I hope she understands that I, that I mean no harm, but I, I'm using this as an anecdote because this happened to me. Um, you know, why are Black people so lazy? And I'm like, what? Like, I was so, I was so gobsmacked. This is wow. somebody who was practicing. Yeah, it, you know, it, it knocked me off my feet. And I didn't, I couldn't even respond. I was just, it, it the anger and the, the shock in my throat. Luckily, we had another friend there who was just like, rude girl, you cannot say that. That is totally inappropriate. And it, it, and it, her experience of Black people, and particularly with migrants, was this reality that she had. And I was coming from a completely different thing. So now I felt like I had to defend all Black people because now it, here's the issue that I wanted to say. And it, I think I touched on it in the beginning. Black is not a monolith. Blackness is not a monolith any more than being white is a monolith. The panoply of things available to white people and Asian people and Indian people and people it, are available to Black people too. In other words, you're going to find someone who's interested in yoga and someone else who's interested in playing the cello and someone else who's interested in in learning cricket or rugby you know it, it, these are things that aren't just oh well it's black people don't do yoga or white people don't listen to rap or you know it's it, these all these boxes and she had a box for what black people meant and now in her based on her experience in her own country which is completely different from mine and she felt that that it was something not only she felt it was something she could say that she had the space to say. And I still, to this day, wonder what she thinks. And would she be honest with me about, about how she felt about it, that moment and, and how she changed in her, because we never really broached it since. And it's just been so weird. But, you know, again, I speak in an honest space because it, it's one of those uncomfortable things that I had to sit with too. Um, Absolutely. And I found, no, and that's, yeah, yeah. It is weird. And then I also found it, in Mysore, this is something that I noticed 
and I don't think people mean it. And I don't, and I certainly don't think Sharat means it, but there is, I experienced it in 2018, last time I was in Mysore. And I lo- that was my favorite time because I had decided I was going to have the best time and I was going to have an amazing, and I had an amazing practice and I got, it got Kapotas and I was like, yay, I can do this. <laughs> and I got past it and I was like, yay. And then, you know, I've been able to, you know, come home and it, gone through injuries and, and it, gone through injuries and come out of it and, and been like, it doesn't matter. It didn't. But the, I noticed the hierarchy. I noticed that there were people trying to get close to him and associating their value with their proximity to him. And I understand about under, trusting in your guru. But on the other hand, now there was, a, there was a competition and it was almost like who could give him the biggest garland of flowers? Who could give the best present uh, during Guru Purnima? Who could wear the best sari? Who could? And I'm just like, okay, that's not as important as how good we can be as people. And the minute I knew, knew that, I was like, okay, this means that how, how if I see this as, some, as a, not a veteran, as somebody who's been to, to Mysore several times, I'd consider you a veteran of Mysore, um, <laughs> is, is how does a person coming to Mysore for the first time feel welcomed into that space? Mm-hmm. And if yeah. we don't, no, can... if we don't, it is really isolating. And I remember, you know, if I didn't have somebody like you to talk to my first trip, you know, in 2011, 12, like I would be miserable. It was 10 years ago was my first trip to Mysore. I was thinking about it because you know how the iPhone reminds you, yay, 10 years ago, this was that, this is what was happening. (laughs) Facebook reminds you. (laughs) And it was 10 years ago. And I thought to myself, if I had experienced what I think, what I can see now back then, I would have been, I don't want to go back because I don't feel welcome here. And I feel scared. I don't feel like I belong. And that is something that we have to challenge ourselves of yogis to stop doing. If you see somebody that's new to the practice and scared and walking around trying to figure it all out, then we can stop and help that person. You see somebody at the regular breakfast spot and we can say, you know, how is it going for you? Are you having a good time? How is practice? Blah, blah, blah. But we kind of are so caught up in our own. I have to focus on me. And the me that they're focusing on, again, is connected to the conditioned, you know, experience, this conditioned existence. It's not who I am. Because if we were connecting it to who we really were, we'd recognize that either we're spiritual beings having this human experience or we're human beings having this amazing opportunity. And that we can, and that is a a moment of joy. I'm not saying everybody should talk to everybody. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, Step out of your comfort zone and the people you always talk to and the people you only talk to because they're the only, you only talk to the people who practice third and second and third series because only they practice at four in the morning. And, and it's like, really? that I can see that mirroring a lot of the practices of privilege back home in Jamaica. And those are things that we have to, that we have to um, uh, counter. In the yoga community in Jamaica, I find, if I speak specifically about that, is interesting and i i want to speak specifically about kinetic yoga because it's because it is an answer for many people for why for black people don't do yoga it's this opportunity now for people who are black to feel i have locks and i'm a black person this and yoga comes from kemet the the belief is that yoga comes from kemet it comes from egypt and that 
for them, the postures that they do, they do a sequence of postures. And it's a lot like, think of like working through, you know, any series when we build together Surya Namaskaras and the foundational asanas. And then they have a whole sequence of seated and standing postures and they go through it with the breath. Now, they don't do the Tristana method the way that we do, but they have their own practice and they all have their own understanding. And it's, con- and it's specifically about embracing your Africanness and your Blackness, because that's something that we haven't always had an opportunity to do. And I get it. Now, I don't, I don't like that practice for me personally. I'm an Ashtangi and I love my vinyasa on the side. And I love, and that's me. But I love that they have the space to do that. And that there's accessibility into the yoga. Anything that gets you into the yoga world, into the room, mm-hmm. is great as far as I'm concerned. We can hold certain people to account. We can hold our leaders to account as we always should. But we have to be able to recognize that for every, every different person, there's a way in. And that we should enjoy that they can do that and be excited. Because that is one of the ways that we can get past that ennui of God, I've hit the wall and what, what do I have, what value do I bring to the practice, practicing it or teaching it over 14, 15 years? What keeps you fresh? For you, you've, how long have you been teaching Kino? Over 20 years, no? Over 20 years, yeah. Right. So it, it's the same thing. I've been teaching 15 years and I'm thinking, what do I do consistently? How do I learn and how do I bring? And to me, the idea of bringing accessibility and allowing every person to have the space to move in their own way, understanding that there's a structure to the movement, understanding that there's a sequence and that we should we strive to understand the sequence, but that we attune that sequence into our bodies. I think we're so much looking at it from the Ashtanga sequence too. Like I see that when I watch Sharat teach, like I've been like, hold on a second. Why are we so hard on each other? And he's not so hard on everybody else as we are on each other. Why do we do that? Why do we assume that it has to be this? It has to be your foot has to be 90 degrees and your other leg has to be 45. And there's nothing wrong with the alignment. But we, when we set it as a rule, then we mean we're, we're naturally going to exclude people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, it's, it's, and if we do that on the mat, how many more times are we doing it without thinking about it off the mat? And that's what I want to, that's what gives me life now. It's combating that, that makes me think, this is why I still teach. This is why I want to continue this practice. This is why it's important to share the practice of yoga, because it's for, and it's something that you've said from the beginning, you know, it's for everyone. And if it's really for everyone, then we have to make it for everyone. Simple. Absolutely. Shakira, this is awesome. And I love this conversation. And I just want to invite everyone who's listening, if you've enjoyed this conversation and all the points we've talked about, to uh, join us for a deeper discussion with uh, some more teachers and, and leaders who are going to be coming together for Ashtanga Intersections. You know, racism is a spiritual obstacle, and we'll be diving deeply into that on Sunday, January 16th. So it's a donation based so event, good. and everyone. Please come and come with an open mind and, and an open heart and dive into all of uh, uh, all, all even more topics than we've covered today. So you can treat this as a little bit of a teaser. So Shakira, thanks so much for sharing your experience. This has been really, uh, really awesome. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at 
www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.